the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Sighs, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Tor Nightfire, publisher of Dark Stars, New Tales of Darkest Horror, a novelette collection edited by John F.D. Taff. Dark Stars features 12 brand new stories showcasing today's top horror talent from award winners and new voices like Stephen Graham Jones, Priya Sharma, Usman T. Malik, Caroline Kepnes, and Alma Katsu. Dark Stars is an homage to the classic horror anthology Dark Forces, edited by Kirby McCauley. All you have to do is sign up for Nightfire's monthly newsletter and follow them on social media. At Tor Nightfire on social and tornightfire.com. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today we're talking by the author of the book for video viewers that can see the book behind me, David Demchuk and Brennan. David Demchuk. Hi, David. Hello. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Um, and this is a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Unburying the Dead. And killing time with Silver Shamrock. David, let's just jump to it, man. What got you into horror? Um, well, I've always loved horror since I was a small child, before I even knew really what horror was. Uh, but I enjoyed for a very for being a nervous, neurotic, um, attention-getting kind of gay child. I uh <laughs> I still enjoyed being scared. I enjoyed being scared by fairy tales. 
I enjoyed being scared by television that uh, I was too young to watch and, um, and Disney movies that, uh, you know, I think my first Disney movie was Snow White mm-hmm. uh, at the age of five in a beautiful old movie theater in Winnipeg. So it had a really special feel to it. And it was completely terrifying. And and there was something that was really, I mean, what was really cool about that at that time was that it was an audience full of parents with children. It was a communal experience. The movies felt very special at that time. You didn't see a lot of Disney movies on television. And, um, and, so, and so part of the experience was the communal reaction to horror and the communal reaction to being scared and, and being thrilled by it and feeling safe and secure because, you know, you were there with your family, your mother could lean over and say, Oh no, it's all going to be okay. Um, But it was still terrifying. And there were a whole slew of Disney movies um, when I was like five, six, seven, eight years old that all had, it was a golden era all had like, spooky horror ghostly witchy elements to them and they were um probably some of my favorite films from that you know from my entire youth and so that was a really big deal but it was also a really big deal having my mother read stuff to us that was uh i mean she tended to read stuff that she really enjoyed rather than stuff that necessarily we really enjoyed but uh, for who, for her, the act of reading to us was really important, and it was important for me. But there was a lot of scary stuff that came from that as well. And also, it was um, it was a weird time. Uh, for example, um, shortly after my brother was born, so I would have been maybe about I don't know three and a half, maybe four years old at the most. Uh, the drive-in um, that summer, I guess, had um, a double bill. Weirdly, a double bill of the solid gold Cadillac with Judy holiday, uh, which is a delightful comedy and psycho. <laughs> so interesting. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like completely ludicrous. So one of the first movies that I ever saw anywhere was psycho. Hmm. And I, you know, my brother was asleep. I was in the back seat. I of course d- don't remember anything of this experience. Anything I do remember, I know my brain has effectively made up because uh, it's just beyond me. But the best part of this was that sometime shortly after, apparently, my aunt came over, my mother's sister, and uh, I was sitting on the floor of the kitchen and I was drawing this picture. And (laughs) it was of this eye in the middle of this spiral. And my aunt apparently asked me, David, what are you drawing? And I turned to her and I said, psycho. <laughs> and, <laughs> and both, like everyone was mortified. Because <laughs> like, what are you doing to this child? So, um, so yeah, that was great. Um, but I mean, from a very early age and, and there was a lot of, you know, great classic stuff on television. Um, when I was home from school and on the weekends, they would play movies in the afternoon a combination of like old black and white movies and and stuff. And then also it was that period. We were just entering into the period where we had the ABC movies of the week, which had some really great made for television films. Mm. uh, Some of which aped things that were going on in movie theaters that you couldn't actually show on television and television knew that it was in competition with what was going on in the movie theaters. And so you got, I mean, 
on one hand, it felt kind of watered down, but I didn't know. I was a child. I had no idea what the real thing was. Uh, but on the other hand, some really creative and interesting ways of getting around television sensors and stuff like that. And so, you know, and there was the series, The Night Gallery. There was Dark Shadows. I mean, there was just a ton of stuff. And mm -hmm. so um, that stuff has always been very present for me. Even when I wasn't writing horror, I was writing horror. And and <laughs> uh, and when I was old enough to read, like just barely old enough to read adult books, those were the books that I immediately gravitated towards. And there was a big occult boom going on during that period as well. And and so a lot of the stuff, even if it was nonfiction, even if it was pseudo documentary on television, still had a horror or supernatural or a paranormal element to it. So um, it was a I mean, I'm just about to turn 60. I'll turn 60 in June. And and it was a really a golden age, you know, for someone who wanted access to that material. It was mm. it was really terrific. I also had another aunt these poor aunts, another sister of my mother's, <laughs> she recognized early on that I loved horror. And so she brought me completely inappropriately. She brought me like copies of creepy and eerie oh, nice. and, and Vampirella. Well, I was far too young for Vampirella and, uh, and gay, but that's okay. I <laughs> it in a different way. And, and famous monsters of Filmland. I had like copies of famous monsters of Filmland. It was amazing. Hmm. And with all the gruesome makeup effects and stuff like that. And, and on one hand, it really fed into um, all of that, that appetite. But on the other hand, what was really cool, particularly around Famous Monsters, was it demystified a lot of the more violent or gruesome imagery that was in these movies and revealed them to be special effects, which was a really, um, in a lot of ways, healthy and rewarding thing for me. Um, because I was just starting to see movies late night on TV, on chiller thriller and things like that, that were pushing the limit as far as um, on-screen violence was concerned. And, uh, and it was easy now to look at stuff and go, oh yeah, well, it's just fake. It's just, you know, that's made of rubber. That's made of corn syrup. That's, you know, and it was, that was a really useful thing to be able to employ when watching stuff that was getting under my skin. Yeah. The behind the scenes stuff. Um, oh yeah. Well, learning about like, for me, Brian jumping after, cause there's so much to tackle, but I just, <laughs> I'm going to zero in on practical effects. And uh, before I realized I want to be a novelist, which it dawned on me when I first met my wife and she, she reintroduced me to reading. But uh, the first thing I thought I wanted to be was a filmmaker. And I love, I'm not knocking on CGI, but I have this like super big, big passion and love for, uh, you know, practical effects and Tom Savini for me is like the greatest greatest master at that and i just love watching my my uncle my godfather used to do uh independent the independent scene for uh, movies in the greater boston area so he he would ingrain this at a young age with me and i have a deep respect for that man because like once you see it you still see it in some movies the effects and you know they're fake but they're so good <laughs> oh yeah i mean there's no question it's a real art form and there were a whole bunch of people who were coming out of that period that um, 
that just did extraordinary work. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously I was too young to go and see The Exorcist, yeah. but in these magazines, I could see how the effects were being achieved. And I wasn't too young. Well, I was, but I mean, I got it from the library. I read The Exorcist when I was like, I don't know, 13 years old. Mm. And 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 so combining, you know, what I read in the story and what I saw in the visual effects, I was able to figure out what it was that the movie was like and how it was going to work. And and that was a particularly potent thing. And it also sort of again, it as it as it amped up certain aspects of the horror, it also cut through so that you could, in fact, as you say, you could say, oh yeah, well, of course, you know, when she turns her head on the bed, it's fake. But at the same time, what a cool effect. Yeah. What a really interesting, you know, and how did they do that? And, oh, they did it this way. And, oh, they cut out a scene. They cut out a scene where she's going down the stairs. How did they do the going down the stairs backwards? Like all of that kind of stuff. And, and so it created a really interesting sort of push-pull that really drew me in to the world of horror much more. And... And, and I, too, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a film director. I really wanted to be a film writer. I thought that film was absolutely the place to be. Um, as I grew older, I realized film was very expensive. And yep. you know, we <laughs> to be doing any of this stuff as if I was self-funding it. And I mean, it was possible because at that time, you know, I had access to like, you know, a film co-op, which is a fairly rare thing in the United States, but oh, Vancouver was, has a big one, right? Sorry to interrupt. Vancouver has a big one. Yeah. Winnipeg, where I grew up, had a big one. They're big, they were scattered across the country right. and you could go in, you could learn how to operate equipment. You could pull together a crew and you could shoot some stuff. And I did some of that and, and you could do stuff on 16 millimeter or even really eight and super eight if it came down to it. But you could also do like at the very, very beginning of independent video, you could do video stuff as well. Hmm. But I quickly realized I was very young. Uh, actors and other people were not going to listen to me. <laughs> I was not the strongest director in my teenage years. And, uh, and so I veered into writing. And then from, from that, I veered out of film, the very expensive film, into theater. Hmm. Um, and then I spent uh, the majority of my career um, working in theater. Um, theater is not conventionally a home for horror. <laughs> um, so again, when I did employ those kinds of, uh, narrative, you know, aspects, I had to sort of sneak them in under, you know, a different kind of guise. That's awesome. But, but of course I learned a lot about writing in general hmm. and, um, and particularly how to create suspense and dread, how to flesh out characters, how to create, you know, sharp kinds of conflict or very subtle simmering, you know, sort of unease and, and that stuff is stuff that I all still, you know, employ in the writing I do today. Uh, all of it works together in its own way. And so that was, that was pretty, I mean, it was a rocky road, but that was pretty much the path that's led me to where I am today, writing horror fiction. Oh, wow. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Brennan, go ahead, buddy. Well, like you said, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. But uh, one of the first things I'd drop in is I like to hope that everybody has that one inappropriate ant um i know i know mine was uh big on always making sure that i got the uh cds that were labeled parental advisory um yes. y you gotta have that one aunt who's willing to kind of you know sneak that to you and then you've got to hide it under the mattress or whatever uh but i i, I want to go back all the way to snow white um mm. 
you know, it's you, you drop that in there. You know, my first horror movie experience is in Snow White. And at first it's like, oh, that's interesting. But then if, if you really think about it, the um, what what's truly, you know, horror about that movie is the juxtaposition, the the ability to go from singing, dancing, you know, sunlight ridden animals to, you know, the entire color palette changes with the reveal of the witch, um, the, the lightning flashes. And it really just. Uh, again, it's that see the, those later scenes. Um, yes, they are horrifying in and of themselves, but it's just how fast the the movie kind of changes that pacing and goes there. Uh, my question is about you mentioned the communal experience, and I yeah. think that is so big. Um, the you know I think of the Blair Witch Project, experiencing that in a theater and just picking up on the emotions, the gasps, the silent cues of all the people in the dark around you, I, I feel like just made that such an event. I want to get your thoughts on how that's kind of changing nowadays with all the streaming services, with video on demand, and the fact that people are starting to go back to the movies, but it's it's not everybody yet. You know, what what do you think we're losing or gaining with that? Well, I mean, I, I, I recognize the world is changing and I don't want to sentimentalize, you know, one way of dealing with horror over another, it's the same way that I wouldn't want to say, oh, reading horror is far more powerful than seeing it in a movie screen or, you know, oh, it's amazing when you go and see a show like, you know, the woman in black in, you know, in a stage play, as opposed to seeing it, you know, another way. Um, each one has its own values. Each one um, has its own drawbacks. Um, one of the things that, I mean, Blair Witch is a really interesting example because it was made so inexpensively and they were able to do a great deal with very little and they were able to amp up the anxiety in ways that were really primal for the audience. And I remember seeing that, I think it was actually the night that it opened um, here in Toronto and um, with my partner at the time. And just within about, you know, five, 10 minutes, just feeling the raw anxiety that these characters felt. And as a group together, not knowing where the movie is going, except perhaps through the title and, and how it is that it's going to unfold. Um, you, although you're told very clearly, these, these people are never recovered. The film is, you know, the last stuff that we ever see of these people. Um, you you are led down this path towards their doom. And as a group, you do all feel it together. As urban people, um, watching something that happens in a non-urban environment and feeling that anxiety, you know, is it nature that's sort of, you know, taking control? How is it that they are losing track of where they are? All of the things that you rely on um, in order to feel safe are stripped away from you. And uh, including the security that you would normally feel with each other in that kind of situation. And, and as a group, you absolutely, it's like electricity that just runs through a crowd. And, and that is a really precious experience. The only, <laughs> it's going to be hilarious going from one to the other. The only movie I've seen since the pandemic began in a theater was when we had that little tiny window when Malignant was out. And so I went to see Malignant in the theater because I thought, first of all, Someone is going to spoil it for me. Everyone is so hyped about this movie that sooner or later, like within a week, I'm going to see what the big deal is, you know, somewhere in my Twitter feed and I'm going to be very pissed off. So I, you know, I thought I'm going to go to a matinee. <laughs> I'm going to be 
you know, I'm going to pick my seat. I'm going to be completely isolated from other people, <laughs> which is more or less what I did. I had about like six anxiety attacks before I actually even got to the seat, but I did get to it and I did sit there. And as the whole thing was unfolding, again, I just sort of had that feeling of this is the kind of absolutely nutso experience that you can only really have in a movie theater with other people all sitting there going, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and it's a really wonderful thing. You can have really great experiences at home with horror. Um, I have certainly enjoyed a lot of stuff that I'm seeing for the first time on services like Shudder or, you know, a few things on Netflix and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a very different experience being isolated and having a kind of intimacy, but also having the ability to like pause it so I can go to the washroom, you know, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> rewind it. If I didn't catch what's subtitle it, you know, do this and that it's, it's an entirely different experience and you can give yourself and perhaps should be able to give yourself certain kinds of, you know, releases from the spell that a story is holding over you. Um, but um, I mean, one of the things that one of the more recent things that I really enjoyed um, in the movie theater perversely was um, hereditary hmm. and um, I saw it in a VIP. I don't know if you have, I guess you have them in the States. They're basically a smaller screening room uh, where they come and they bring food to you and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I wanted, again, I wanted to have a very controlled environment. I knew it was going to be a frightening movie. I wasn't really sure what to expect. And there was a woman who was on the other, other side of the uh, theater. And as soon as the big moment with the telephone pole happened, she got up, <laughs> Went stomp, 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 slam out. And then I guess she couldn't get her money back. So then she came <laughs> stomping all the way back in and sat in the exact same seat. And then, of course, towards the end, there's a moment with some piano wire. Stomp, 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 stomp. And I was like, slam. And I was like, I don't know what you thought you were going to get, lady, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, here we are. Um, and there are, some, I mean, there are some awful things about that, but there are also some hilarious, you know, one-of-a-kind moments that come, again, from that kind of communal experience that you can't really get the same way um, in your living room. You can if you have, like, a bunch of friends over and you're all going to, like, you know, eat popcorn together or nachos and, you know, and jump and scream. But, uh, but it's just, it's not... It's not really the same. Having something that's so huge, overwhelming you and taking up your entire focus and allowing you to just completely absorb yourself in it, it's, a, it's very special. And I would hate to see that go away. I can see, you know, I, I'm enjoying having the alternative, uh, you know, the option of uh, being able to watch something at home or being able to go to the movie theater. Um, I kind of don't want that to go away either. But there are really special things, uh, special moments that you can get just out of seeing something, you know, in a large audience or even a large space with a small audience. And, and all of you are feeling that same feeling together. It's one of the things that drew me into theater, too, was that mm. communal aspect. Mm. I'm with you. I also want to have my cake and eat it, too. I miss that we're having the, uh, you know, like the say HBO Max has, has stopped uh, sending their movies to the streaming service on the same day they come out. So, but uh, you know, I, I, I am all for the communal. I, I actually have not been to the movies since before the pandemic. We've got, you know, somebody in the house who's very high risk and it's, wow. it just doesn't seem worth it on, you know, in, in my opinion. Um, but 
I remember watching the movie Host uh, alone in my living room on my phone with headphones in. Oh, and wow. even that made for, you know, an experience because, you know, the way my living room set up is, uh, you know, my I, I'm sitting on the couch. There's a space behind it. You know, I'm looking behind me every couple minutes. And so, you know, it's it's not the communal experience, but there's still a way to freak yourself out at home for sure. Well, and that was a show, a movie that was uh, that was totally tailored for watching at home during the pandemic. And that that immersive quality that came from from using Zoom as 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 your platform for these kinds of scares. And and um, yeah, I thought it was tremendous. I I it scared the shit out of me. I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Brennan, you, you beat me to it because I was going to say that. uh when I watched it, it was one of the few times when I had the house to myself, my wife and my son were out and, uh, I, yeah, I felt like a little kid. I oh yeah. I, I was genuinely like, I get feelings, not that I'm special with this, but I get some feelings in certain homes and I'm like, I don't want to be in this room. I don't have that here. <laughs> and there are names under my stairwell from the 1920s with a list of family members. And, and that sounds creepy, but it's, it's not a, I don't have that feeling here, but when I watched that movie, I did. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, they knew absolutely what they were doing every step of the way. It was, it was seamlessly done. And there were several special effects in it that just completely threw me where I was like, what the hell are they doing? (laughs) (laughs) That one with Emma. Yes. Yes. Jed and Rob, they're going to, they're going to go far, man. Yeah. Um, I got a question or I think it's a mix comment question from Eric LaRocca. He said, David, you're working hard and dark fiction means the world to me. Red X is the kind of book I wish I had read when I was growing up and first discovered my sexuality and gender. You are a wealth of information when it comes to obscure yet meaningful queer stories. Your recommendation of the short story, A Marriage of Convenience, was hugely important to me as a writer who yearns for more dark portrayals of queer people in genre fiction. Do you have any other compelling recommendations to queer novels or short stories that have shaped your identity as a writer? And if you want to touch on that story, um, that'd be because I, I was just I, that's why I jumped into the conversation on Twitter. I was like, I'm I'm continually so interested. I've never heard of this stuff before. Like that the the way you described that story specifically, not queer um, horror fiction, just the way you talked about this. I want to know more. Yeah, it uh, <laughs> it was an experience. So, um, well, first of all, thank you, Eric. I mean, I I admire Eric greatly. I think that he's one of the um, coolest new voices in horror. He's doing really interesting stuff. He's not af- afraid to push into extremes. The same is true with Gretchen. The same is true with Haley uh, Haley Piper. There, there's there's a really great sort of younger generation who are exploring their 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 innermost fears, their personal issues. Um, on the page in really interesting ways, um, in ways that are engaging audiences that go well beyond the queer, trans, non-binary communities. And I think that's just, I think it's outstanding. Um, that, of course, was not always the case. <laughs> the uh, I have it right here, actually, because my copy finally arrived like yesterday. Um, the book we were talking about is, in fact, a book ostensibly for, for, for gay men. Uh, called On the Line, uh, New Gay Fiction. 
It is a book that was published in 19, oh God, 1981. I would have, I would have seen it in a bookstore probably around 1984, 85. Uh, I would have seen it at Glad Day Books here in Toronto. And uh, because I didn't have a lot of money, I was young. I would actually go into stores as one does. And I would stand there and I would read <laughs> an entire story. And then I would just put it back. Um, if I, if I was really um, taken by something and there were several, particularly in an anthology, and there were several stories in it that appealed to me, then obviously I would buy it. In this case, <laughs> I read the story while I was standing there and I just was like, like this, I was just pulling my head back from the page going, what, what, what? And I got to the end of the book, the end of the story and I just slammed the book shut and I just put it back on the shelf and walked right out of the store. <laughs> it was so completely repellent. And what's interesting about that, apart from the fact that, you know, it's possible to have something that's completely repellent that just unnerves you to the point where you have to actually leave the space the book is actually in, um, is that it takes um, tropes that are in themselves uh, traditionally employed by homophobes against us mm. uh, as queer people and things that we feel uneasy about ourselves, things that we, um, um, when we get together amongst ourselves, we have questions about, sometimes we raise them with each other, you know, and in this particular case, I'll, 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 I'll frame without spoiling the story, which is hard to do, but, um, you know, what it deals with is um, an earlier period in time. If I think I feel like it's between like sort of late in the Victorian era to like maybe the 1920s or 30s. It's somewhere in there. Um, a gentleman is recounting how he used to have a correspondence with this man um, who was obviously uh, homosexual. And um, this man has decided that he's going to marry this woman. And it's the marriage of convenience in mm -hmm. the title. And you think to yourself, as one does, particularly in that period, he's doing it in order to conceal his sexuality um, for, you know, employers or society or family or whatever else is required. But he, in fact, has um, a particular agenda that he wants to act on. And it, it remains very unclear. <laughs> it's very unpleasant but it remains very unclear what it is that's going on with him um, and what it is he's trying to get out of this relationship until quite late in the story. And it is so utterly appalling that it is the kind of thing you would never want straight people to read, which mm. is a challenge. And, and now, I mean, then, I mean, 1981, you know, but also now here in 2000, 2022, there is a great emphasis always placed on queer writers, regardless of genre, mm -hmm. that uh, you should always be putting the best face forward for the queer community. You should always be representing, you know, positive portrayals and, and you know, sort of, you know, not necessarily soft and cuddly, but certainly not um, things that would reinforce, you know, uh, anti-queer attacks against yourself or against you know, the people around you, but, and so there are, there are sometimes things that we don't examine in our fiction, or if we do, we do so in a very private way. And, um, and that limits our ability to really tackle 
um, the things that that we feel conflicted about within ourselves. This is one of the reasons why I really admire Eric and why I really admire Gretchen in particular is mm. because they are actually taking those kinds of topics head on. Mm. If you, you know, transphobes, you know, feel particular things, you know, towards, towards uh, trans people and particularly trans women, they express them in a particular way. They spread particular kinds of myths and, and Gretchen will sit there and go, fine. If that's the way you feel, if those are the things you think, I'm going to take those and I'm going to turn them against you. And I'm going to turn, you know, and she's not afraid to do that. This is she's awesome. Oh yeah. She's (laughs) awesome. Absolutely. And, um, and so, and so this is a really vital turning point, I think for us, um, as, as queer horror writers and as trans horror writers, um, um, you know, at this point in our history, because, um, we can be so confrontative. There wasn't a, always a time where we could be so confrontative and the the thing that is subtly being dealt with in in and not so subtly at a particular point in in this particular story is the notion that all gay men are pedophiles and that um all gay men are interested in either corrupting or converting or seducing or abducting um children uh, mm. and and that's a thing that is a that is, first of all, is extremely uncomfortable, and um, and has is a is a trope that has been used against queer people, um, really, you know, since you know the eighteen hundreds, and um, and has been tremendously difficult to fight against. Not least because pedophiles do actually really exist. Um, they are not necessarily queer identified, even if they are having sex with children of the same gender. Um, because in a lot of ways, pedophilia is separate from um, from homosexuality in the way that it's expressed. But there is still that image. There is still that feeling. And we see it throughout, you know, Texas and Florida, you know, with these anti-grooming laws and things like that. That is still a very powerful trope. Uh, people still feel uh, very anxious about gay teachers, uh, gay parents, um, you know, gay scoutmasters, you know, gay Sunday school teachers, you know, all, all of that. And so for a writer to take that and just like squeeze, <laughs> squeeze that trope and make, you know, a queer reader, you know, feel uncomfortable with it and the way that it's deployed, it's a, it's a very powerful thing. Um, it's worse than what I'm describing it's even more unpleasant, but I'm going to leave that to readers to find out. Yeah, I I might have missed this, but is that is that writer gay or? Oh start? yeah. Oh, the thing that's huh. really interesting about him. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> oh my yeah. god! Yeah, his name is Peter Burton, and um, and he was for a very long time in the UK. Um, a, a well-known um, and, and quite activist gay journalist. Um, he was, I think, an editor or the publisher of the Gay Times, which was um, a very important uh, queer newspaper in its era. Um, he wrote um, a, an amount of short fiction. Um, I think some of it was horror. I don't think all of it was horror. I think this is the only one that really went like barreling down that particular line. And, and, and he did it, I think, with exactly the same kind of energy that a lot of the younger writers are, are, are using today. That, that attitude of, 
if this is what you think, if this is what you feel, I am absolutely going to explore this in this story. And I am going to make you so very uncomfortable <laughs> that it's your skin is going to crawl. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, as I said to Eric online, I said, this is one of the most vile, objectionable things that I have ever read. I, it, I never did buy the book. It lived with me for like 30, 35 years. And, yeah. and then only, you know, I only thought of it the other day when I was thinking about sort of like, you know, transgressive queer work in general. And, and that story came back to me and I, and I remembered things about it, but I couldn't remember the writer. In fact, I got the writer totally wrong. (laughs) And, and I couldn't really remember the title. I could only remember the premise. So it took like massive amounts of Google foo in order to (laughs) find anything. And then when I found it, I was like, yes, Yes, I have it. I have it. I know what it is. And uh, and and I was able to read a few lines of it on uh, on uh, Google Books. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yes, that's absolutely the story. And yes, that's absolutely the writer. I have to track it down. And I was able to find, I think, probably one of the very few copies that's um, floating around um, in the secondhand market. So, so yeah. Man, that that's <laughs> that is insane. I have yeah. no analogy to say. That's like yeah. because that's its own thing to to at that point. Well, what it is actually, I mean, there's a, the the prevalent genre for for straight people is the rape revenge uh, oh. uh, story, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and and we have seen that the vast majority of rape revenge movies are you know tacky and exploitative and sexualizing of the woman and sexualizing of sexual assault Mm. and and you know and even though uh it can be you know thrilling to see her get revenge on the people who have attacked her um it's you know it's never quite as transgressive as it wants to be only recently have we started seeing films that sort of take um rape revenge tropes and have like turned them inside out in order to create a different kind of experience than what we've seen before. And uh, there've been a few, but not very many. And, and so that to me is the same kind of thing. It's like, how do you take a trope like that, which um, is generally speaking tired and trite and, and, and designed for a particular kind of titillation and then um subvert it somehow so that um, women can feel genuinely empowered by what it is that's being explored and men can feel uh, genuinely uncomfortable with how it's being turned against them as viewers. You know what, what comes straight to mind. And I saw this probably when it came out, if not right after David Slade, director David Slade came out with a movie called hard candy with Elliot page in 2005. That that's a great example that ended still gives me chills oh yeah absolutely not necessarily strictly a horror film probably more of a thriller but but very unsettling and very confrontative the whole the whole time particularly if you don't know a lot about the movie Hmm. the whole time as it's unfolding you're thinking to yourself what am i really watching yes why am i sitting here watching and i mean it's compelling so that's the reason why you keep watching good dialogue but at the same time it's like where are you taking this? Where is this going to go? And then when it starts to dawn on you what's happening, it's like, okay. 
<laughs> and it's 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 wild. And uh, and Elliot Page gives a tremendous performance, just like really, like just spot on. It's it's a phenomenal film. You know what? He he's actually a great example of um, the LGBTQ community. Uh, mm-hmm just coming out with a letter last year talking about it. And he just is always so nice. And there are so many chances that he could post about this asshole, this bad person. But from what I've seen, he just focuses on the good. And I I see that a lot in like you and Eric and, um, and Haley and no knock on Gretchen, but she, and and I I like this, I've told her, but she just goes straight for the throat with people. And, Yeah. I, I, I like it because I'm not I'm not on the receiving end, but <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I think if you're on the receiving end, you're in serious trouble. There's no question. Um, and and I will say, I mean, I have a great admiration for people who can be that no bullshit with uh, with other people, particularly for people who are constantly coming at them in social media and in other aspects of their lives. It's extremely frustrating. You know, you're mostly just trying to do what it is that you're trying to do. You're trying to express yourself. You're trying to create your art and, and to continually be challenged and worn away and told you're not a real person and told your experience isn't valid and told that you, you know, that, that you're a mockery of, you know, one thing or another. I mean, that queer people have heard all of this stuff too. This is not new, but it's particularly incisive and nasty uh, towards the trans community and non-binary communities right now. And, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, why wouldn't you, you know, bash back to a certain extent? You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, particularly in this kind of space, it's like, you know, rather than just put up with being attacked, rather than just muting people and, and you know, putting on a brave face, if someone comes, comes at you, it's like, well, you know, you're a fucking asshole too. And that's, yep. that's, that's where it's at. And, um, but at the same time, you don't want to give these people so much of your energy and you don't want to reward their hostility with attention. You do kind of want to move forward. You do kind of want to create the stuff that you can create. You don't want to be bullied off one platform or another. You want to be able to engage with people who care about your work. It's, it's a, it's a very important thing to do. And, and so it's a constant balancing act, you know, how available should you be, um, to total strangers uh, who think that they own a piece of you because they bought your book or because right. they saw your book in a store. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you do want to be there for people who really need you. I mean, there's no question. I've had a number of people, uh, particularly with Red X, who have like come into my private messages or who have sent me emails through my website and have said, you know, your book has been very important to me. Um, you know, Eric, you know, all of the messages that Eric ha- has said, which I really treasure, are things that I've received from total strangers. And and it's a very powerful thing. And you want to be able to offer people that kind of strength and support that, you know, you didn't necessarily get yourself when you were younger. Hmm. Um because we now have these platforms and these channels open to us. Um, But at the same time, you know, you're opening yourself up for abuse and you have to figure out, you know, you have to negotiate a way within yourself and with people around you to ensure that you have the support you need in order to weather that. It, it, that's a lot. Yeah. I agree with that, man. Um, The entire sentiment. And it's just, it's really strange to me. Like, social media i went to scares of care last year and i bring that up because i'm meeting a lot of the our our peers in person and um one of my close friends ronald kelly uh he's 
He's come come and gone uh, once or twice in the running career since since eighty six, mm-hmm. and so we've picked his brain about what it used to be like. But it's just it's super exciting. But at the same time, dude, tell me if this part right now I will be more than happy to cut this out um, sure. if you want. Um, not making not trying to make this about myself, but that post I made just asking a question: Can straight writers write? Uh, Queer heart, and I didn't realize until like Haley, uh, Bob Pastorell, and a few others responded. Where in my head, I'm like, "That's not," and this will go to what you and I discussed a few days ago. Um, that initial question I thought was my question one, but it really was, "What is queer heart?" Because I didn't know. I didn't know. They answered, well, and I mean, and the thing is that that uh, how how we would define queer horror has has changed really over like you know 150 200 years and and even farther back i mean hmm. before we had the word queer before we knew what queerness was queerness existed and was an aspect of the stories we told and horror stories were among those stories and sometimes queerness has been a thing that has been has been um, sort of, you know, turned into a monstrosity. Um, Sometimes it has been, you know, the core sort of like positive romantic relationship within a horrific narrative. And, and a lot is dependent upon the time and the place and, you know, the dynamics of the era. Um, We really see um, queerness being turned into monstrosity, you know, in the, in the, you know, the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, um, in a variety of different ways, you know, queer horror is at the core of Dracula, for example. And, uh, and I talk about this in Red X where, where Dracula, you know, overtly says to his brides, you know, this man is mine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and basically, you know, commands them to back off. And, you know, if, the character of Jonathan Harker had been a little more sexualized in um, in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example. There would have been more of a chemistry between between Dracula and Jonathan Harker. There's certainly a sense that that Renfield, the the uh, lawyer that Dracula is engaged, is in thrall to Dracula, and there could be, if it was properly done, a sexual element to that as well. Some of this is in the text. Some of this is stuff you can impose on the text. But the thing is, that stuff was a concern in the 1800s because uh, homosexuality was being pathologized and criminalized in the 1800s. And here was a way to illustrate that. Bram Stoker himself was reputedly a closeted homosexual. He was a Catholic who was very conflicted. And, um, and so, and yet, uh, a pal of Walt Whitman's, an enemy of Oscar Wilde's, <laughs> like like all sorts <laughs> of stuff going on there, um, and you know, and to us, and and had a, a real anxiety around sexuality in general, as you can see in his work, and that and and that remains enacted in his work and in uh, material that's derived from his work uh, to the present day. So when we talk about queer horror, we're talking, we're using relatively recent words to talk about you know, sort of in some ways, a centuries old phenomenon. And, Mm. and, and as Haley was pointing out, um, and I say quite correctly, um, there are two ways to look at how it's worked. There's sort of the before times and there's some overlap and then there's the present. Um, 
queerness and queer horror was being defined by straight people because that's who was writing, that's who had access to publication, and they had the agenda to to pathologize, criminalize, and 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 make us monstrous. Um, only now, in relatively recent times, covertly and then overtly, have we been able as queer people to take control of that narrative, to gain access to publication um, outside our own communities and our own circles, uh, to be able to communicate to a wider audience about our experiences and to and to own the queer horror experience and the queer horror genre name for ourselves. Mm. Uh, there is nothing to stop um, straight people from writing about queer people and some, you know, straight people have written beautifully about queer people, you know, and have done so uh, for generations. Um, and, um, and I mean, and that's wonderful. And I think that we as queer and trans and non-binary people, because those experiences have been written about as well, we honor that. We, on, we appreciate being understood. We appreciate being advocated for and, and we appreciate um, people, um, putting their minds into our lives and into our experiences and exploring them from their perspectives. I think that's tremendous. Um, I myself um, with cautiously write about experiences that are not directly my own. Um, but I think it's important uh, in order to check with people who have had those experiences, who lived those lives to ensure that I'm being true to that um, rather than imposing my own fiction upon, upon their lives. Um, but when we talk about queer horror, I think that we're largely talking about um, horror that um, that speaks to our experience and our lives and our issues and our concerns um, from the inside in a very direct way, um, and that invites people into that. Um, in the same way that we've seen a lot of tremendous uh, Black horror and Indigenous horror um, um, and Asian horror uh, over the past, um, you know. 10, 20, 30 years. And again, the stuff that works the best, that feels the truest, that has the greatest impact is stuff that comes from within those communities. Um, it doesn't preclude people uh, being able to write about either those characters or those topics, but, um, but you know, in a respectful and, and, um, and, and sensitive and uh, thoughtful fashion, but, but, um, but we are, trying something different <laughs> yeah to totally makes sense brendan you had something to say just want to throw in uh i was gonna bring up i asked what geisha i get nervous sometimes asking that but that's why i love doing the face-to-face -face. just because i'm not like queer was that was an insult growing up and oh yeah it was just a bad word so it's still a sensitive word for a lot of people um when when i because i'm of the generation i guess you know that that both has heard it as a slur yeah. and has heard it as a political empowering term when i use the word queer i use it as a word that encompasses um, a range of sexualities, a range of gender experiences, um, without actually stepping on the trans and non-binary labels. But, um, but for me, queerness is about more than being gay. And in fact, often if people ask me, I will say that I'm gay slash queer because hmm. queerness sort of expands its borders beyond um, the specifics of a gay experience. Hmm. Queer is also a very political term. It's, it, 
for a while there and still probably, you know, it, it's a, it's, uh, I'm not an academic person. I never went to university, but it's an academic term. It speaks to particular kinds of theories and a particular kind of politic that, um, that while it's a word that is accepted in those communities, it's not always um, felt comfortably uh, by say older gay men, um, by lesbians, um, by bisexuals. Some people feel included by it. Some people feel excluded by it. It, it can be a very individual thing. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I was talking to Wagishi when we had Wagishi Rice on and the more Brandon and I do this and I'll speak for you on this brand, correct me if uh, I am speaking incorrectly on your behalf, but we started out doing it for fun and it's turned into just basically document um, this era of horror and dark fiction and crime. And also it's you, when you talk to people like books, it's bridging lives and understanding, hopefully, obviously the uh, ideal version of life for a lot of us is that we'll all be in one unifying piece. And that's what these conversations do. So even though I get nervous asking them and I'm not as much, as I talk to people that um, uh, that like you or what Gishi Grice with uh, asking about can white people in your opinion, I always phrase, I try to always phrase it in your opinion because I know yeah. one opinions person, vary absolutely exactly and and I I respect that and that I mean isn't that what all of us want man just like respect and to understand each other. Did I cut out? Shocked Brennan into silence. <laughs> oh, David, I think he was asking you. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, so I was kind of just throwing it out there. At first, I didn't know okay. if I froze. Um, okay. But <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. But I'm well, going to get up. Go ahead. The question, the question is, you know, do we all, you know, want to understand each other? I would like to hope that we do. And that what we're trying to do is share understanding uh, with people who are not ourselves and that, um, and that some people will be interested and that some people won't. Um, I totally understand with Red X, for example, Red X is talking about a very particular kind of experience and a particularly dark experience that we, that we have in the queer community of people who are predating on us and particularly the possibility that, you know, the person predating on us is, is from within our own community as opposed to, you know, a queer basher from outside. And, um, and so that is a thing that's really, it's tough to grapple with at the best of times. And so I totally understand when people nope out of it, like that. I absolutely get that. There are, there are books that I've read where I get so far and I think to myself, yeah, I am not in a space uh, where I can continue reading this. I honor everything that it's doing, but it's, it's just not for me and not for now. Mm. Um, but um I don't want to assume that um, people outside my experience don't want to read this stuff because it is too dark or because it presents an image of the queer community that they are not prepared to grapple with. Um, because I think there are people out there who do feel that they want to know more about this and who do want to weigh in um, to this kind of material. And um, and into and into the lives and experiences of of queer people today and in decades past. Um, but that's not true of every story. That's not true of every reader. That's not true of every writer. You know, everyone is bringing their own thing to it. 
And, um, but I do think that the majority of people um, do recognize that, that writing and in particular fiction writing is a kind of communication um, where, where you want to sort of meet each other and you want to, and you want to find out what life is like for people um, who are not yourself. Um, I, you know, knowing that there are a lot of people out there who do what I would describe as comfort reading and who want to read mostly about themselves or people who are similar to themselves or people who've had similar experiences because that's a thing that they derive pleasure from and, and, and they don't want to be continually confronted with the material uh, that they're, that they're reading and they don't want to be, you know, constantly challenged. It can be exhausting, but um, horror I've always said horror is an elastic medium. Horror gives you a lot of tools to work with mm-hmm. that and, and removes a lot of constraints that you might find in other genres. And uh, because fundamentally horror readers mostly want to be scared <laughs> and they yeah. don't really care, you know, how you do it. And in fact, the more interesting and the more unusual and, you know, and the more innovative that you are, the more, you know, they're, the more they're interested because they want that fresh experience. They want new ways for you to like get under their skin. And, um, and that's why I'm, I personally feel like it's a great medium to work in uh, because um, I know that an eager audience is sitting there waiting for you to like just unleash something on them. And, uh, and I'm happy to try <laughs> Well, you did with Red X, man, but we'll get to that soon. Brennan, sure. go ahead, sir. Uh, honestly, whatever I was going to put in, I have forgotten uh, what it was ever <laughs> since. You know what I did want to do, though, because we were talking about Eric. Uh, so anybody who is not aware, uh, listeners, Eric just surprised released this brand new book, You've Lost a Lot of Blood. Uh, you can get it right now pretty much wherever you get books, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and 50% of the proceeds are going to Trans Lifeline. It is, uh, I have not read it yet, but I have every bit of confidence that it's a great story, uh, and obviously it's a great cause as well. Okay, so it's over. Sorry, Patrick, yeah, go ahead. No, <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt. So, <laughs> Actually, You know what? If you don't have anywhere specific to go, I'd like to lead us into Red X. Are you okay with that? All right. Now, I'm going to lead us in by throwing it back to you because we <laughs> both, David, we we both enjoyed this book a lot. You know, it, it brings the creeps. And like you said, it, it's, uh, it has that innovative voice to it. There's a reason why you're seeing so many people, um, you know, no matter what... Uh, I guess, hierarchy you would place them on in the horror community, whether they're independent writers, uh, you know, traditionally published big five writers or like big publications or, uh, you know, the best of Canadian fiction who are all (laughs) singing the praises of this book. Um, Now, the reason I want to throw it back to Patrick is because a few times on this show, uh, I've seen him dive into someone's work and really form a bond with it, an attachment that uh, gets his brain going like a hamster on a wheel, except the hamster is on cocaine. And really, like, is that a compliment? Kind of, okay, yeah, I'm it was. It was. Um, <laughs> but I, I saw it with uh, Chuck Polinick, I saw it with Peter Straub. Uh, and now I'm seeing it with Red X, where he sees what you can do with this book 
And all of a sudden, you know, his wheels are turning as far as what is possible when it comes to fiction. So Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that this book kind of holds a special place with him. So, uh, Patrick, kick us off. Give us some thoughts. I mean, look, I I didn't know if David was going to think I was a creep, but like, seriously, (laughs) audio listeners, like this is my my wife got me a notebook when we started dating in 2015, 2016. I didn't know what to put in it. And I was dealing with, uh, I don't really, I haven't really talked about this on the show yet, but I mean, I, I quit drinking five months ago. It's I'm 33, did enough in my twenties and it got me in a lot of trouble. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I wrote about that in the first few pages. Then I started writing about no, the show notes when me and Brennan started the show in 2020 and I have one page left and I'm like, I got dark stars next week, but I'm like, uh, this would make perfect sense if I just did this. And I thought you were going to think I was a total creep for that, man. This is my first fan art. I am very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Audio listeners, I wrote an X, a big X, there's some red crosses, and then just a dedication, which I don't even know if it's a thing to, to, to David, just in case one day I die and someone gives a shit about my notebook. Well, they can, seriously, he's right. Uh, um, this has a special place in my heart next to Peter Sharp's Coco. And um, oh my god, <laughs> I'm going to fall over. <laughs> this is kind of weird because this is a nonfiction book, and I love Chuck Palahniuk's work. But uh, consider this was just it, it. It did something for me as a writer, and Coco did something for me where it's got the gears turning. To it, it has me super invested, more so in. Two of my grandparents and my great uncles who are in the war, uh, World War II, Korean War. Um, and and uh, what Red X did for me was, uh, please tell me to cut this if this ruins it. I don't no, think it will. Ahead. I don't want to spoil this book. The What you do with meta, you know, the meta fiction in it, it's just like we've seen it. And actually, he did it, but in a, a way different way. Richard Shizmar did it with Chasing yes. the Boogeyman. And you both did it in such different ways. They tackle crime. They tackle horror. They just, they're their own thing. But with this in particular, Red X, it just, it's so weird. I listened to the audiobook, and I say that with love. Mm-hmm. I listened to the audiobook. I have the, obviously, I have the paperback. You can see it. But um, it's, there's this one part where it's repeating audio from the beginning of the book or, or earlier in the book. I'm like, this is so fucking cool. And then I look back, I look back at the drawings, and there's uh, this listeners. There's what we call the ruined page. Yes, yes, (laughs) the ruined page. Yep. And I'm looking at that, and then I mean, you got the you got your that is a fantastic author photo, but very classy. The thing that I loved was this. Look at that. Yeah, boy. Said, yeah, and, people get to see my bare ass. It's a real treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that I mean, I love <laughs> that shit. Image. Chuck Palahniuk, he fucks with his physical appearance too, at least on one of the author photos. And and the reason why it hit when hit with me so hard isn't just the metaphysiction stuff. It's I like I, I'm a straight person. I'm not gonna pretend I'm not, but I mean. Like one of my dearest friends, like 
this sounds so weird and lame, but like I, I've one of my, I mean, I have gay friends, but that's 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 the jokey way. Of, that's the <laughs> oh, jokey. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that's no, that's the jokey way of saying um, that one of my earliest childhood friends, and I kind of v- vaguely touched on it uh, in a tweet with you. Um, he he was super gay, and his I'll make this short. His parents, when they found out he was, they I'm not saying all Vietnamese people do this, but they're from the from Vietnam and they had very stringent ways of looking at life. And they made him sleep outside in the in their backyard on the trampoline. And yeah. I, I didn't get it. I was like, no. that's Tommy. I, why? <laughs> um, so I, I the reason I bring that story up is because. My parents have always taught me that you love people and you just respect everyone. And and what I'm seeing with Red X is that, like, there are some things in this world that don't give. A, this is such a weird way to describe this. That don't give a shit who or what you are. And you'll be marked and you're just doomed. Um, man, I'm all over the place. Sorry, I'm really hyped up. That's I just fine. That's I do not fine. get like this. I got like this with well, Gishig Rice with Jeff uh with Jed Shepard and, and oh. with Peter Straub and, and now you. So well, I mean what I, I couldn't possibly be in better company to <laughs> <laughs> to create such an effect on you. I can speak to a few things. I mean, one of the things that was very important to me when I was uh, when I was writing Red X was I wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, first of all, um, I started Red X many years ago, like more than you would expect um, as a play. Um, I think it was somewhere around 2015, 2016. And at that, yeah, exactly. And at that point, um, there were three men in Toronto who had disappeared relatively recently. And um, they were all men of color. And at the time, um, it was possible that they had either gone underground because of immigration issues or or they had fled to, to other cities or had gone back to their families or had gone back to their home countries. And, and so, and each one was treated very differently, very individually. And, but I knew, having been here since the mid-80s, I knew that there had always been disappearances um, from Toronto's uh gay village. Hmm. And I knew from my experiences with other cities that other cities had um, always had this as well. Montreal's had this, Vancouver's had this, uh, New York notoriously has had this, San Francisco. And and so for me, it was like, here's this phenomenon of gay men disappearing. And it predates the 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 period of AIDS. And and is something that, you know, if you look around, you can find out about, but hadn't really been written about in any detail. And at that point, I thought to myself, what if there was something else? What if there was something else? And in particular, during the HIV AIDS sort of peak, that era, there was something that was taking gay men and was able to use what was going on almost as a kind of a cover in order to take people undetected. And I did not know. I mean, we always talk about the possibility of serial killers, but that's because serial killers have this sort of legendary status um, as as monsters in the modern era. And um, and so I didn't know at the time that there was one actually operating and actually operating quite close to me and my circle of friends. Mm. And and so 
I wrote it as a play. It was, you know, it had a meta theatrical kind of quality to it. And I managed to carry some of that over into the book. And, and, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting as a project, but it never really sort of came together. And so I shelved it. And, uh, and then my, the next thing I did was uh, the project that became the bone mother, uh, which was my sort of like, you know, first was, um, a staged piece. And then secondly, was sort of my breakout book. And, um, and I knew <laughs> that because it was becoming a success, I thought to myself, what am I going to do after the bone mother? And then I thought, oh, well, I have read X. Why don't I try taking that out and seeing if I can do something different with it? Maybe I can do something with it as a book. And by that point, more men had disappeared. And still there was a lot of simmering talk around, you know, what it was, why it was, was there someone, you know, um, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know that had happened that had been brought to the attention of the police. The police had not acted on it or acted, you know, in an ineffectual way. And, and so I tackled the book, I started the book and then partway through the book, someone I knew vanished. And I, and most of us, because he didn't fit the profile of people who had previously disappeared, we thought, oh, you know, Andrew was the kind of person who, you know, if there was a dog that was trapped down in the ravine, he would, you know, go down to try to save the dog and he would break his neck. Right. So there was a lot of um, attention towards trying to find him in places that, um, that it would make sense for someone to get lost or for someone to have a misadventure. Um, I don't think it ever occurred to any of us that he might actually have been murdered, but of course he was. And then, um, just as the police were once again reassuring us that there wasn't a serial killer operating within the community, like the very next day they revealed that, in fact, they had known all along a serial killer was operating in our community. So that was really comforting. And they found <laughs> his remains. And, uh, and then they found other remains. And then they revealed, you know, a whole narrative that had been going on all this time. And I turned <laughs> to a very dear friend of mine, my friend Ing, who, uh, who is a journalist and, uh, and who is no longer with us. I turned to her and I said, I have to stop this book. I can't, I can't, I can't write this book. I've told this story a few times. And she said, no, you have to write this book now more than ever. You have to write. She could be very emphatic. Now you have to write this book now. And I'm like, okay, well, if I, I, I can't write this book and not acknowledge what's going on in the real world because people are going to think I'm an asshole. <laughs> Not least because people are going to think I'm an asshole. And then it was like, okay, well then I'm just going to put myself in the book. And I, and I developed, as you know, a certain strategy uh, in which to incorporate nonfiction into the book and then ultimately to incorporate myself into the book um, and, and to lay a whole bunch of stuff out that traditionally is not normally laid out in horror fiction. And so that was the approach I took. And one of the things that mattered to me as I was, as I was telling the story was to tell the stories of gay men who are isolated who do not have support systems, who do not have people who would necessarily miss them and talk about a monster who preys on those people and to talk about a monster who preys on those people because he has those feelings about himself. And that I thought, of course, to me, that's, that's a very specifically queer narrative, but it's also a narrative I think people from any community can understand 
um, that that if you do not have supports, if you are isolated, if you're marginalized in any way, then you are vulnerable and you are vulnerable to people who will absolutely take advantage of that loneliness. And that loneliness um, can be a driving force towards your doom. And, uh, and our culture is set up for those people to be exploited in a variety of ways. And, and so that was the story that I ended up telling. Plus, on top of all that, I think that you can kind of, well, you definitely can feel your passion for the city, the cities rather you grew up in. There's a lot of love for parts of Canada and the way you didn't make, I feel like it's a fine line where you can make it boring. I love history, but Mm -hmm. if you deliver it the wrong way, it's really boring. You just delivered it in a way where it sets it up and it's building blocks. And I thought it was a very, um, you made this story progress by doing that. Oh, well, thank you very much. Absolutely. It's uh, uh, I, I don't know why it is. There are a few people who have picked it out and, and sort of mentioned it back to me. I don't know why I'm so concerned with the past, except that I see it as being the place where the seeds of the present are. And mm-hmm. I see us sort of going through cycles um, over and over again in our histories. And one of the other things that was pointed out to me by uh, another interviewer here in Canada was that I have this real sort of obsession with villages. <laughs> and it's like, what, what, why a village? You know, because it starts when Toronto is just a village. You know, the gay village is a village within a larger city. Um, there are villages in my previous book. And, and, and in fact, in the, the book I'm working on now. And and so, and to me, it's like, this is a microcosm of, of all of the sort of human dynamics that you find. And, and some of those um, are very, are very conservative, that desire to, to try to preserve the character of a space and, and to treat other people as, you know, as outsiders, as others, um, and and to and to push them further and further away rather than to integrate them and welcome them and that and that struggle I think is also really rich uh, for horror but also just for fiction and for conflict in general. Could it also be just jumping back on the village thing? Sure. Could it also be that a village, at least when I think of one, is you you know everybody it's safe and there you know no one's the monster all the monsters are the external force you know everyone yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah dun, dun, there's dun. no monster yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely and that's one of the things that um, in particular that um, that a monster can employ you know against the vulnerable is the you know you know me. You've seen me around, you know who I am. I, you know, and and the implicit thing is that because you know me, I must be harmless. And yet immediately under the surface, you have no idea what's lurking there. And yeah. and um and that's a that's a story we you know, it's a story we tell over and over again because it's true. <laughs> but it's a story we tell over and over again because it's it's important for us to caution each other in the same way that we use folklore and fairy tales, we're using them to, to warn people, you know, here are the things that might happen to you. Someone asked me, this was for a school presentation uh, that I did. Uh, Someone asked me, why is it that, you know, in so many fairy tales and so much folklore, the, 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 the villain is inside the family. And I said, because that's where they are. There's, there's a myth 
about how, you know, a stranger is going to come up to you. And sometimes that does happen. A stranger is going to come up to you and is going to, you know, attack you in some way. But I mean, the reason that fairy tales and folklore are telling you about the dangers within your own family is because that's where they are. That's where a lot of them are. And, um, and they can, they can either catch you by surprise or you can be subjected to abuse over a period of years. And you can only, you know, find yourself, you know, with birds and fairy godmothers to free you, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, like that's, those are, those are important narratives because they contain an element of truth to them. And, um, and the whole notion of a village being the people, you know, but don't really is absolutely, um, an important story to tell. Absolutely. And just talking about, you know, earlier serial killers, John Wayne Gacy, everyone would never expect him. He, he was, he was you know, a clown. He was harmless. He did children's parties. Nobody a ch- knew. A church, <laughs> a church goer too. And then on oh, top, yeah. top of that, the BTK killer, uh, how he yeah. he was in charge of a of a church. And, mm-hmm. and I, I'm connecting the dots there. Brennan, take over, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Um, I, I, I actually want to jump back a, a little bit to the the whole metafiction aspect because sure. I what that did for me is it provided a layer of relatability that just came at me in a different way than you see in most books. You know, I mean, the book starts out with uh, essentially a nonfiction introduction. You know, you, you kind of let the person know this is Toronto and it's not, you know, we're not dropping you into a fairy tale version of it, like boom, real life. Um, and, but then it's, you know, let me tell you a story. And by the time, as you said, you drop yourself into the story, what it did for me is, as an outsider looking in on this village, um, listening to this story about this community, it just kind of provided this, you know, these are not just people I'm viewing. These are not just people I'm watching on a screen, reading about in a book. These are people I could be connected through to through text. You know, they're reaching out to, you know, ask a question. Uh, they're reaching out to uh, dip into my expertise or I'm reaching out to dip into theirs. Um, and to kind of bring that almost isolated community uh, into a wider spectrum, um, I just thought that was a brilliant way of getting the reader to kind of attach to what's what happens over the course of, you know, 1984 to 2016. Um, now, is that all very intentional? Was that why oh, you did yeah. it? Or? Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, once I had committed to the idea that I was going to implicate myself in the book and I was going to examine myself, you know, not even necessarily knowing the answers to the questions I was asking myself, but you know, why am I attracted to horror? Why, what is the relationship between queerness and horror? You know, there was sort of that underlying thing. Is something wrong with me that I would be, that I would even be writing this story? What is, what am I, what's going on with me? And I wanted to, to engage. I mean, I wanted to engage with myself obviously and use the book to explore that, but I also wanted to get engage other people who might have similar questions either about me <laughs> and I wouldn't blame them or about themselves. You know, why is it that we, that we take stories like these and we tell them what is, what is it that we're getting out of this process, both as readers and as tellers. And, um, and And then at a particular point, I realized the way that I was, you know, I was going to have to actually take the extra step and put myself 
into the story in order to interact with the characters and and lead them towards the conclusion they were looking for. It was funny because again, my friend Ing, she read that section and she went to my Facebook and she started looking for this fictional character in my friends. And it was like, well, I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always very proud of myself for that. But um, but it's I mean, it's always it's always a risky gambit. First of all, it's a risky thing for writers to write about writing because who cares, right? The majority of time, people don't care about writers. They don't want to read about writers. They don't want to read about actors. There are certain things they just, because it's like, just do your thing, right? But at the same time, you know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about, say, craft or process. Mostly I talk about what's running, you know, through my mind and, and, and what things that I'm, that I'm exploring personally that end up being related to the book. And so things begin to sort of, you know, blur between, between fiction and reality. And, um, and then there is that thing where I just, you know, in a way reveal that what they thought had been sort of a third person narrative all along has really been a first person narrative from the very start. I've just concealed that as my own sort of (laughs) private secret. And, um, and I think when that happens, it's 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 kind of a revelation for a lot of people who read it. It's more than just a trick. It's it it just sort of sheds a different light on the entire story. Um, no one expects the story to be my story until that particular moment, and then they go, "Oh well," and then they carry on from there. And um, you know, and I do various other things with myself that we won't go into. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it to people to read, you know, towards the end. Um, it was one thing I will say is that uh, there was, of course, a close friend of mine asked me, you know, so how much of it, how much of it is true? <laughs> and I said, well, and at first, I didn't really understand the question. So, of course, I said, well, I mean, all of the stuff that you would expect to be true is true. Like, I have this disability, I have this fascination with horror, I have this awful relationship with my now dead mother, I, uh, you know, all of these things. And then <laughs> I didn't realize it was kind of about the sex. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I don't go out. I order in. <laughs> and that was basically the end of that. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I, I would definitely agree with what you said. You know, it it doesn't to me. It didn't function like a trick. You know, the the word never entered my mind. It is a a reveal, a revelation. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, um, a performance. It uh. changes the way you view the story. You know, and just in the same way that you could say that, you know, uh, Bruce Willis was dead all along is not a trick (laughs) because it changed the entire context of it came out in like 1997. If you haven't, we of course are talking about Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) now i want to watch that again with with this knowledge but you know to me that's the difference between like a cheap uh director's trick and you know a a revelation is if it changes the way that you know you interpret the pages or the minutes that came before then it's a worthy reveal Absolutely. Absolutely. I really wanted to reframe the narrative and, and make people, you know, sort of like, 
in that moment that you that you sometimes have at the movies too. You know, I think that I think that fiction writers, you know, novelists, are a little bit jealous of horror movies because you get to have a jump scare. And so I wanted to find ways to sort of simulate a jump scare <laughs> that didn't involve things actually popping up off the page. I mean, the so-called ruined page is one of those things. And 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 the revelation uh, of, of the true nature of the voice of the book is another one where you sit there and you just sort of, your mind goes back and then forward again over the whole book and goes, oh, is that what's going on here? And that, I think, is a really cool thing to be able to do. Um, I, I don't know if I pointed this out, but you are the narrator, well, one of two narrators in the audio version. How did that come to be? Because if it was me, I'd be a little scared um, of <laughs> that's a, that's its own art form. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So how, yeah. how did you feel? Well, um, of course they asked, you know, uh, it is traditional that, uh, they may not always agree with what you say, but they will ask, you know, how do you want to do this? And my first thought was, I am not going to be able to read this book, uh, all the way through from beginning to end. There was a point in the process of editing the book where I sat down with a friend of mine from Chicago on zoom and we read the entire book from start to finish over about 11 hours because I was trying to catch inconsistencies and errors and things. But, you know, and we alternated back and forth with sections and there were sections where I just burst into tears. I just could not read them. And I kept handing them over to him and he was like, Oh, this is so cute. And I'm like, no, it is not cute. <laughs> and so, cause I'm like, how am I supposed to do any of this? So when they asked me, you know, Oh, do you want to read your book? I was like, fuck no. <laughs> I said, however, I would really like to read what we refer to as the essays. And they were like, that would be really cool. That makes a lot of sense. We can totally do that. I said, if you can find an actor and of course they asked, do you have any ideas? And so I suggested a few names and I really lucked out because one of the people I suggested was the person they chose, uh, mm -hmm. Salvatore Antonio. And, um, and, and so I thought to myself, okay, things are pretty okay. He's going to read the parts that are so-called fiction. I'm going to read the parts that are so-called essays. And then the, the woman who was coordinating this asked, well, how, what do you want to do about uh, the final section? And I was like, oh, because of course that's where it's revealed that I'm actually telling the story all along. And ideally, you know, it should have been the person who was reading it from the start. And I was like, um, can we, um, I don't know, alternate? Can we do some sort of thing in the studio? And she said, okay, well, I'll, we'll, we'll talk with the director. We'll see what we can work out. And I uh, was thrilled. It I came was out absolutely great. thrilled. It came out great. Because it's so one good, of those man. things, too, where there are visual elements to the book, and you think, obviously, some of them are going to be left out. But you think, how are you going to realize some of the other things that are really important to the way that it works? And they had really great solutions. They were really, you know, they were really right on the money with it. And I think, um, I think it's a tremendous audiobook, and I think the approach has been fantastic. Hard to agree on that. Um, Brennan, anything else you want to talk about Red X? I got one last thing, but I'll leave it for the tail end of. I have uh, I have a question and a thought that uh, something that really stuck out to me um, from. Oh, gosh, I'm going to mess it up. It was it was started in the 1984 and it goes yep. off into either uh, it's either the 92 or the 2000. I forget. But Hank, I thought. Officer Hank was so interesting in that he's 
introduced as meek kid new on the job and just the way that you imply his surroundings shape him and i just want to know a little bit more about that that was a lot of actually as dark as that whole section is because it's very dark that was actually a lot of fun to write um originally I did not have Hank as the younger officer who comes in to harass the gay bar and the gay bar's manager. I had just a random younger officer. But when I but I knew that I was going to want to have a section around the police towards the middle of the book. And then when I got there, I thought to myself, oh, it's the same cop. <laughs> just make the connection. Just go ahead, go back, make them the same cop and have that and have that transformation occur from someone who is basically a rookie who is being taught to be hostile towards these people and then how that hostility is realized um, when they, when they, it's not a huge spoiler, when they find a homeless man, they take him out to a notorious part of Toronto and they basically, you know, the, the, the officer beats the shit out of him until he dies. And, um, and so in, in grappling with both because there are two cops in both those characters with both their perceptions around that incident and around um, the overwhelming homophobia and in certain cases, self-hatred that they feel in their jobs. That was, that was a very important section for me to write because it's something that we have acutely felt within our city for decades, for generations probably. And that continues to go I would say largely unaddressed. Um, I think now the police have finally realized that they need to come to terms with this as a, a tremendous obstacle um, between themselves and the queer community, particularly if they ever have any hope of serving the queer community, um, because the distrust is so profound. But um, but also it's just that thing where um, homophobia particularly at that extreme level is both destructive and self-destructive and uh, without resorting to the cliche of, you know, all homophobes are actually secretly queer. Um, I wanted to explore um, the aspects of themselves that had to do with uh, self-hatred, with hatred of sexuality and with their own uh, vulnerabilities. And that was, um, that was a really powerful section of the book. It was really, it, parts of it were tough to write, but, um, it really went to, um, a powerful place for me. You know what? I'm going to jump in right here, Brennan, then please you, um, if you have anything else, uh, about hate, there's something in high school. I went to a Catholic high school and th there were retreats. Um, and this girl, she got up and she said something I still remember to this day. Uh, and I went to high school. I graduated in 2007, so it's been a little while. And uh, she said, I used to hate my dad. He wasn't he wasn't obviously a good father. And she said, I learned that if I let that go, it it changes everything for me because hate is um, it's a heavy it's a weight. It's a physical weight in your body. And if you carry that around for anyone, it's just going to eat you alive and destroy you. So that's just my two cents to add on to what you had to say. Um, and I think that's really important to reiterate 
because we can get like we talked about social media. You can oh, get tra- sure. you can get trapped. You have a you can have a great day. Someone can compliment you that you didn't even think that you admire that you didn't think knew who you were. But we seem to focus on some people that aren't so nice, and that's why I bring it up to piggyback off you because it's just it's really important to remember that that shit's not worth. Oh it's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a poison that you carry with you and it does end up affecting everything. And there was a long period of time in my life where it wasn't even that I had my hate channeled towards particular people, but there were, I would wake up and I would think I hate my life. And then I would have a life that one would hate. <laughs> and I, it took a long time to turn that around and and make my life into something that I felt rewarded by and that I felt engaged in and felt positive about. But a lot of that was connected to um, intrinsic self-hate that a lot of queer people carry with them. And that is projected on you by family members, that is projected on you by, you know, larger society. And 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 that toxicity that that comes from that you end up um spreading it in directions you don't even recognize you end up just throwing seeds in all directions and then you find yourself surrounded with it and it's it's not to pour all of this on the victim but but it's important to to find other ways to see yourself besides your own victimhood um in order to be able to progress and move forward and also to be like gretchen and basically you know grab your enemies by the throat and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah man absolutely well said uh there this is, has nothing to do with red x but at the same time as everything to do with red x um a few days ago uh, i'm just gonna i feel like this is important to mention to listeners that uh going back to when i talked about a tweet i made a question that wasn't really the question i realized i wanted to ask um i had reached out to you i'm pretty sure the first time as i said to you the first time i had ever done this with a guest Uh but i didn't want to spring upon you the following question and the way i had worded it was um are you comfortable with talking about your experience with the aids crisis and obviously that's the theme well something heavily heavily throat red x and uh, the parallels with COVID-19 and you, I would like it actually, if you could jump in because you're probably going to say it a lot more smart, smart than I am, smarter than I would. Sure. I can't talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting time for people who lived through uh, the HIV AIDS crisis and interesting in a double-edged kind of way. Um so to contextualize, uh, as you know, I'm 59. That means when um, HIV/AIDS first became something that we were aware of in North America, I was basically 18. So I had just, I had just started having sex with men. <laughs> I had just, you know, come out of my adolescence and was That's now crazy. at a point. Oh, so fucking annoying! Wow. And- <laughs> I I was finally legal. I could finally be with other men. I could finally have sex with them the way that they, you know, the way that I saw in porn, the way that I understood as part of queer culture. And I'm told slam. And in fact, I mean, at the very beginning, 
it was presented as a gay cancer because that's what the first obvious symptoms were. And it was unclear how it was being transmitted. So there was a lot of conversation, you know, was it, was it all sexual contact? Was, was it, you know, like if it was oral sex as well as anal sex, you know, of course, you know, famously, you know, the whole world and particularly straight people were like, is it kissing, you know? Um, what could possibly prevent it? A lot of people just were celibate for long periods of time until we could figure out what exactly it was. It was fairly clear that it was some kind of contagiousness that was within our community. And, uh, you know, people were wondering, you know, is it particular kinds of sex drugs that people use? Is it particular, you know, like, is it, are some people more vulnerable than others racially or otherwise? And, you know, are, are some people who only are in particular positions getting it? Like it, there was a lot of that stuff and there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of struggle around it. And it took a very long time, comparatively speaking, to, to figure out what the deal was, to be able to establish rules for ourselves, to be able to, to form our own understanding and take care of ourselves against an outwardly hostile world that wanted to do things like, and you would hear this all the time. You would hear like, oh, we should put them all on an island. Oh, we should sterilize them all. Mm. Oh, we should, you know, if we execute them all. Oh, if we, like, you would just, you would hear this stuff constantly. And of course you would hear stories like, you know, oh, so-and-so is a gay actor and his, you know, cast members don't want to kiss him. You know, like it's that kind of stuff, right? So, so, and of course, has to be said, we never got a vaccine. <laughs> right. We got um, terrible damaging drugs for quite a while, like AZT, um, that weren't particularly effective. They were better than nothing for some people, but they were also dreadful for other people. And it took a long time to get the drugs that we have today that work so well that we can now use them uh, proactively in order to prevent the spread of HIV. This is what's known as PrEP. And, um, but I mean, in all this time, we never got a vaccine. So when we talk about, Wild. I know when we talk about COVID, um, there are a couple of things. We had a politician still have him, unfortunately in Alberta, um, who was trying really hard, um, a while ago, maybe a month or two ago to draw a parallel between how, <laughs> such an asshole, how people with AIDS used to be shunned and excluded from society and, and, and how the, the unvaccinated were being treated the same way. Oh, there, there's so many reasons that's bad. Oh, it's, it was, that's, well, it, wow. was, it was horrendous. And when you hear that, in fact, this politician in his youth was part of a group of people um, who are trying to prevent, um, AIDS patients in San Francisco from uh, having access to their loved ones as they were dying. What the fuck? Yeah, he's a monster. Um, that you get to see how special this kind of argument is. So, um, so the first thing I would say, <laughs> obviously, oh is is the difference between the two is that um, one is a sexually communicable disease, and is comparatively speaking not super contagious. It's contagious enough. It's more contagious than, than some STIs. Up until the point that HIV AIDS emerged, all of the STIs we had were curable through, um, through antibiotics and preventable through condoms and stuff like that. 
but gay men did not have a high rate of condom usage because they knew most of the things they would catch were in fact curable. This was the first thing that came along that wasn't curable and could kill you. And, um, and then we as a group, as a community rallied together in order to figure out how to, you know, what strategies we could employ, what safer sex, safer sex strategies we could employ in order to, to save our community. COVID, <laughs> I'm sure we all know this, is an airborne disease. <laughs> I thought so, it was a kissing disease. The, exactly. <laughs> so, so more, you know, the newest variant is potentially more contagious than measles. And so there is a significant difference between not seating somebody in your restaurant because they're HIV positive when obviously they're not going to spread it to anybody unless they fuck them in your restaurant or someone who is unvaccinated who might be carrying COVID and might contaminate 14 people in the restaurant. Slight difference. Yeah. Um, the other differences with COVID are. Because it's so contagious, it has traveled very rapidly. It has affected a lot of people, and it has killed a lot of people. It has killed more than a million people in the United States, which is extraordinary. And, um, and so absolutely, if there was a way to get a vaccine, they absolutely should have gotten on top of getting a vaccine. And guess what they did? They were lucky in that it was SARS-like. Well, in fact, a SARS variant. And so they already had stuff that they were working with that was going to provide them with a vaccine. And one of the weird byproducts of all this is that we may in fact end up with an HIV vaccine as a result of the processes they've gone through in order to develop the, uh, the COVID vaccines. And that would be fantastic. Yeah. Wow. A little late, but it would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so th th those would be like the parallels and those would be the differences. I mean, certainly we as queer people watching how um, COVID has spread, how mitigation measure measures like masks and so on have been both really valuable and devalued by, by the larger community, how there's been weird anxiety about taking vaccines, about using masks, about maintaining distance, about, you know, all of those trying to keep hospitals relatively, you know, unpopulated because when the crisis comes, it really comes. Yeah. Um, you know, we sort of look, it's hard not to look at stuff and go, well, they didn't learn anything from our experience. And it's not like we didn't try to share that, but it is a reminder that in a crisis, some people panic and that panic manifests itself as certain kinds of selfishness, certain kinds of defensiveness, um, and certain kinds of othering where it's like, I'm not the problem. Those people are the problem. And of course, one of the biggest challenges with HIV and one of the biggest challenges with COVID is people who are relatively privileged are able to um, keep themselves relatively safe or are able to get themselves the kind of medical help they need in order to come through it relatively unscathed. Marginalized people are screwed. As is often the case with disease, with any number of other things in our culture, marginalized people are screwed. So, yes, absolutely. So, um, so as always, it's really important to ensure that there is ever greater equity uh, among um, people who are suffering, um, that they have access to, to uh, the medical help they need, they have access to the drugs they need, they have access to uh, the support they need, 
and um, and that's a continual struggle. It's I mean, it's really hard in the United States where there's a lot of privatized healthcare. It's also hard in Canada, even though we have a more robust public healthcare system. It is not perfect, and um, and that's a, a huge issue for us. So if I was going to say anything about you know HIV/AIDS versus COVID, those would be the things that I would emphasize. Those are all really insightful things. Brennan, uh, do you have anything to add to this, buddy? Uh, no, not really. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I think those were all excellent points. I think anything I tried to add to it would only diminish the conversation. <laughs> I'm going to memorize that. <laughs> I could use that sentence probably once a day. <laughs> I think all politicians should also memorize that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that That's guy... Weird. That guy should get a stake shoved up his butt. Oh, he's he's just a piece of work. Yeah. And, and you know, I think I'm immemorial, so I, I think that you can tell, you know, obviously you can tell a lot about somebody by, you know, the fact that they will uh poo-poo social distancing and masking and all that and vaccines and all that stuff, but I think you can tell more about them by the comparisons they make, such as AIDS crisis, Holocaust, all that, you know, if you're, if you're willing to publicly, if you're willing to think that, never mind publicly state that, then you are really uh, providing a lot of character information. Yeah. Um, So terrible segue, but I didn't want to forget to mention, or actually I'll I'll lob it to you, David, that you have some big news about Rex. The film. (laughs) Either way. Hey, we're still recording. Did I just freeze? You just froze. It was it yep. was a magic moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Patrick, come back. <laughs> I, I, I was just asking if you could please uh, just, I, I'm going to lob it to you. You can mention the, the good news that you got about Red X. Oh, well, yes, there is that. Uh, <laughs> We uh, just received word a few days ago that a company in Canada, Shaftesbury Films, has optioned Red X uh, for either film or television adaptation. And uh, Shaftesbury has um, a strong record, uh, both doing um, historical series uh, in Canada uh, we have a show called Murdoch Mysteries, which is very popular. It's uh, it's it's made through their company. But if you have seen on Shutter or a number of other places, there is a series called Slasher that uh, has had four seasons. I think it's about to have its fifth. Um, and each season is sort of a standalone story of you know one kind of killer or another that's mowing through a group of people, and they are they are really fun. They're really uh, well done. The um, the executive producer of them is a gentleman named Aaron Martin, and um, and and so I feel very comforted that Shaftesbury um, has uh, shown an interest in this project, and. Um, and now we're reaching the point where they're going to start contracting people and they're going to start pursuing funding. They're going to start looking for a network or a streamer. And, uh, and then we will see what develops. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's, it's delightful news. I'm very happy. Yeah. That, I mean, I hope that it comes sooner than later because mm-hmm. I would love to watch. 
uh, the film or TV adaptation. Um, you know, this might be random to you guys, but uh, Peter Straub's Coco and that that trilogy. Yeah. I don't understand how the hell that hasn't been adapted yet. Well, I think now that we have the ability to do um, really um, tough, powerful, long-form series, um, maybe there's a chance that uh, those books will be looked at. I don't think that you could do Justice to Coco with a movie, really. But if you were to have like an eight or ten episode show, I think that you could, that would be enough, I think, to really dig into it because it's, it's a tremendous book, but, Mm -hmm. but also, I mean, it's, it's tough going for people who are, I mean, even for horror readers, it it has, it has some harsh material. So, um, but it's a tremendous book. I mean, he's, he's a tremendous writer anyway. That trilogy is tremendous. Um, Coco has a very special place in my heart. That's why I'm just, I'm awestruck. I didn't know uh, that you would even put me in the same category. Oh, it's phenomenal. (laughs) Um, I I'm sure you have your own, but like, you know, I never expect it. And then here's the thing with me personally, which is what I want to do with the show, get to know, have conversations, get to know the creator, not just focus on one book or books, because quite frankly, that could be boring depending who's on, but more importantly, I want to know who the person is because I fall more head over heels for that creator if I know the person. I like him and I find yeah. him interesting. Oh, for sure. And when, when we had Peter on talking to him, I mean, I already love Kogo, but that just put me over the edge. And that's what I'm getting with you right now with Red X. So, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a fanboy because you talked about you, you're coming out with a, a. It happens. Whatever. I don't give a shit. We can record for another three. We can. Re- we can record for another three years, a hundred more episodes for a year. And it, uh, you, you, there's just some people that you fanboy over. Brennan yeah. did it with Chuck Palahniuk, and that was funny. Oh, me. yeah. Well, he's amazing, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he is also in uh, He's also uh, in the LGBTQ community. He so totally is. There's him, Clyde, Bar- Clyde yep. Barker. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, I'm getting off track. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what my point was, but. If you guys are okay with it, I'll dive into the outro questions. Sure. Sure. David, what are you currently reading? What am I currently reading? Um, Well, let me look over there. (laughs) I currently on the go, I have AC Wise's uh, collection, which is the ghost sequences. Um, I've read a few of them. I haven't made my way through yet. I have the new Ellen Datlow collection. um, When it, uh, when things get dark, which is the Shirley Jackson themed collection. Um, I just finished reading Laird Barron's uh, short story tiptoe in there, which is really good. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm now, I'm now going to reread uh, marriage of convenience uh, in order to find out uh, if it's just as unpleasant now as it was when I first read it. Um, those are most of the things that I'm looking at now. I have like I have a ridiculous to be re- to be read pile. It's just it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Brian. just makes you fit right in here. Oh yeah. Uh, I am reading uh, Ronald Kelly's Haunt of Southern Fried Fear. It is oh great. Uh, it actually comes out uh, as this airs on the 28th. It comes out tomorrow. 
Uh, and it's, you know, this is just a, a fun little collection of short stories that's kind of harks back to the EC Comics days. Um, doesn't take itself too seriously. Ron added the illustrations himself. It's just, I'm, I'm having a blast with it. I read one or two a day and I get my, uh, I, I, I get my Southern colloquialisms and uh, a little, a little fright on top of it. Uh, I'm also in Dark Stars. Um, oh. I just read, I mean, the, the, the table of contents on this thing is ridiculous. You know, Josh Mallerman, uh, Ramsey Campbell, Caroline Kepnes, John Taff edited the whole thing. Stephen Graham Jones. Um, I just read Amakatsu's, um, the familiar, and it does a, it does such a fabulous job of, you know, I love, I love that whole, don't see the monster thing or, you know, limit the monster. And it does such a fabulous job of that, except then you, you know, then we get into spoiler territory. So it, it kind of takes you to this nice little extra place past, you know, the monsters hiding in the shadows. Uh, so far, this is this is a really cool collection. I love the throwback to the uh, 1980s anthology uh, Dark Forces. Dark, um, dark Fuse. Wait, wasn't Dark Fuse? No, it's Forces. Oh, um, I was cool. wrong. And uh, just the, the idea of gathering like the who's who or a who's who of, you know, current writers um, and having them contribute these kind of like novel at length works, like really mm. cool idea. And it's so far, the execution is spot on. Good. Pat. Uh, yeah. So I'm also reading Dark Stars, but uh, for F.L. Wilson, I am prepping with probably something that doesn't make sense to a whole lot of people, but one of his newer books, uh, it's called Virgin. It's, uh-huh. it's a fictional story about, um, well, uh, Mary, <laughs> the Virgin Mary. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's that's really, cool. yeah, it's really neat. And it jumps to like modern day uh, Israel. And um, I just started. So I'm like 30 minutes in. And it's <laughs> it's really neat. That's all I could say about it. And a book that I want to jump into real soon next is uh, called Blood Sugar. It oh. is by Daniel. Oh, Krause. Daniel Kraus, fantastic! Yeah. yeah, that guy, man, he covers so much terrain. Yeah. So I'm really excited. That'll be my first Kraus book, and I also just got his upcoming one with Rod Dog. Uh, raw dog screaming press. Oh, yes. <laughs> Look at that cover. It's so cool. <laughs> Makes me want to eat. Uh, <laughs> David, where can people follow you? Um, you can find me at uh, you not very much on Facebook. So it's mostly Twitter and Instagram. Uh, they both have the, the same annoying handle, which is at sign. S P O zero K Y underscore D A D. Yeah. Or just search for David Demchuk. You, I'll turn up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, no, not really. Like, I mean, I will say that um, there is a lot of terrific horror that is coming out like right this minute. I am really, there's a, like the new Ty West movie X. I'm really looking forward to familiar title, but, uh, but sounds really fun. And, uh, and, and uh, master with Regina King is now on, um, I guess it's on Amazon. 
might be on Amazon Prime. Um, But there's a bunch of stuff that's coming out right now that is like either really interesting sort of, again, inversions or subversions of, of traditional horror or like flat out fascinating slasher stuff that I'm just, that I'm just really eager to see. Um, I was, I was really happy to see uh, the new screen movie the other day because it finally made it onto streaming. Um, so uh, my appetite is whetted. I can't wait for, for more of it. And of course there are so many great books coming out this year as well. It's uh, it's just intense. We're spoiled. We're yeah. very spoiled right now. It's amazing. <laughs> I agree. What about you, Brian? I want to thank David for your time. Thank you for joining us on this uh, Friday. It's Friday, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's the weekend. Thank goodness. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for joining us on this Friday night. Uh, You know, Patrick mentioned earlier, we love getting to know the creator behind the story. And I am very glad we got to talk Red X, but frankly, I think we could have done a two hour episode where we didn't even bring up the book. Uh, You had so many interesting things to say, and uh, it would be our pleasure to have you back on at some Mm -hmm. point. Oh, I'd be delighted to come back. You guys are great. I've had such a wonderful time. That's awesome. Um, I, I don't have anything smart to add to Brennan, so I'm going to go with what he said. That's how I feel. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, next episode is episode 140. That'll be with a panel uh, for Dark Stars. That's uh, three gentlemen that we've had on before. John F.D. Teff, Josh Mellerman, and John Langan. Uh, all three individually can talk for a very long time. So all three at the same time, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) I look forward to your seven hour episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's only part one. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. Uh,